Please join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 today, 1 Thessalonians. Today we are studying just two verses. Our passage is verse 1 and 2. What is said in this short passage, though, is always timely, and that's because of a danger that believers always face, and a danger that churches face as well. Of course, when you hear that, you might be thinking of various dangers that we face, the danger of worldliness that's all around us, the danger of false teaching, satanic influence, government interference, and so on, and no doubt those are all real dangers. But there is another danger that Christians constantly face. It is the danger of thinking that we have no need of further progress and growth spiritually. In other words, it's the danger of the status quo. Now that term, status quo, is a Latin phrase. It essentially means the existing state of affairs. So the phrase is used commonly to refer to just accepting how conditions presently are, contrasted with seeking the need for and the opportunity for a possible change. Well, this can be a danger in our lives as followers of Christ. We can easily just settle, you see, for the status quo. We can just get to that place where we are coasting in our Christian lives, taking comfort in all the great doctrine that we know and affirm, taking comfort in the reality of our eternal security in Christ. It's a wonderful thing, but if we're not careful, this can result in becoming spiritually lazy and then spiritual apathy can set in. The fact is, for all believers, this side of heaven, this side of eternity, we don't come to be all that God desires for us spiritually. Now, Paul understood that, the Apostle Paul, for his own life. I'm going to read that familiar section in Philippians 3 here for a moment, where it's one of those autobiographical sections, you know, in Paul's life. Philippians 3, verse 12 says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, meaning mature, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, again, meaning maturity, all that he wants to be for Christ. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Even the apostle, sometimes we think of him as the super apostle, even Paul was not just satisfied with status quo when it came to his spiritual growth. And today we find that the same thing was true of Paul in his perspective about the Thessalonians, the believers in the city of Thessalonica. He did not want those believers to just settle for the status quo. He was concerned that that could happen. He was concerned that they might just start coasting in their Christian lives. But you hear that, you might ask, well, wait a minute, I've been here for this study from the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. Haven't we already seen in previous sermons that this church was in many ways a model church? In fact, I believe there was even a sermon entitled that, 
a model church. Haven't we seen earlier in this letter that the apostle was grateful for all the Lord had done and was doing in that church? The answer is yes. Paul had certainly taught them well when he was with them. Paul and Silas and Timothy, those missionaries, when they went to Thessalonica the first time, brought the gospel there. Many came to Christ. A church was begun. They continued to be there for a while, teaching them doctrine. He knew that. And those believers there were living exemplary lives in many ways. And he commended them for that. Look back at chapter 1. We saw it there in verse 2. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 7 of chapter 1, he even says that that church had become an example to all the believers in Macedonia. He said it again in chapter 2, verse 13, we constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God from us, in other words, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. It's a great church, but even a church as strong as the one in Thessalonica, a church that knew the truth and embraced it, can be tempted to settle for the status quo. They might come to a place, Paul was concerned, that they were thinking there was no need for further improvement. But he knew they could do better, and so he used this part of his letter to them to encourage them to that end, to strive for spiritual excellence. Just so you'll know, that was a common approach by Paul when he wrote to other churches as well. I mean, he regularly taught truth to believers in his letters, but he also at times sought to motivate them to apply the truth, to connect the dots between what they say they knew and how they lived, and to do that in an ever-increasing way in their lives. Here's an example to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. To the church in Philippi, good church, Philippians 1.9. Here's what he prayed for them. I pray that your love, it was something specific he was mentioning here, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge, in all discernment. And this is exactly what Paul is doing in the first two verses of our chapter, chapter 4. He's challenging believers, not just the ones in Thessalonica, but by the Spirit of God challenging all believers, including us here today, challenging us to grow spiritually, urging us to strive for spiritual excellence. As we know, in the realm of spiritual things, that growth spiritually and maturing spiritually that we experience is called sanctification. That's the theological term that summarized that. So we could even say that The first two verses here are about that. It's a passage about the believer's need for continual sanctification. And that's true. That's what it is. As we go forward in our study, keep in mind something that where we are in the the study here, chapter 4 begins the second section of the body of the letter. So we have finished section 1. This is the second section, chapters 4 and 5. And it's a section that is principally oriented toward giving moral instruction. 
So he does exhort believers here to progress in what they already knew, but he is going to add some new teaching in accordance with the report that Timothy had brought back to Paul in Corinth. Paul had moved on to the city of Corinth from which he wrote this letter. Timothy had gone back to Thessalonica to see how things were going. He meets back up with Paul and gives them a report. And that influenced some of what Paul's going to say in these last two chapters. Plus, the church had sent some questions to Paul, so he seeks to answer those. But let's look today at the first two verses of this second section, verses 1 and 2. Notice how he begins with this phrase in verse 1. Finally, then, brethren, and when you see those words in Paul's letters, you're starting to think, does finally mean that he's drawing it to a close? Sometimes he means it. He means that. Sometimes he uses that to, because he's reached the end of his discourse. That's true in 2 Corinthians. You find it used that way in Philippians. You find it even in the second letter to Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians. But here, it's not being used that way. The opening terms here simply mark the transition to a new theme. So what we have in our text is a more extended final word. It's a final word that is over two chapters. In any case, he addresses his readers as brethren, and that's the plural form. So it is brothers and sisters. That's how we would think of it. As usual, that's the address the apostle uses to show his love for his readers. It's an address that as well shows his tact and his graciousness in approaching things that he needs to say sometimes. So with that address in place, we come now to an appeal from the Apostle Paul to the believers in Thessalonica and to us as well related to our spiritual growth. And we're going to examine that appeal this way. We're going to examine the three elements of the appeal. Here's the first element. Number one, the nature of of the appeal, the nature of the appeal. The nature of Paul's appeal is found, conveyed in the two verbs that we see now in verse 1. We request and exhort you. That first verb, request, can be translated ask. In this context, it has a, a little bit more strength to it than just the normal kind of way of saying ask. There are some antiquated terms in English that we hardly ever use anymore, like beseech and entreat. They have a little bit more force to them. It's the idea here. The second term, exhort, can be translated urge. It can be translated that way. It it does come from a word group that means to come alongside, to encourage. But it's used when you mean something more than a simple request, but yet something a little bit less than a clear-cut direct command. It does convey authority. As one writer puts it, it conveys a diplomatic authority. It's the term that Paul frequently uses when he turns from the teaching in one of his letters. He makes a clear turn to the application of the, ter- to the, of the teaching. It's the response now to the teaching. And he'll say, now, I've taught you all this, therefore now I exhort you. There's a good example of that in those familiar words of Romans 12, verse 1, after 11 chapters of incredible teaching and theology. He says in Romans 12, verse 1, therefore I urge you, same term, I exhort you by the mercies of God now to present your bodies a living sacrifice. We know from Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, that all preachers 
are to include this element in their preaching, exhortation. He says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So you could understand the first term as as a little bit more friendly to say I request this. And the latter term as more of an authoritative apostolic plea. But there is authority here. However, any authority behind what the apostle is now saying is not his own. And he wants to make that clear. It is derived authority. So he adds in verse 1, it's I'm requesting this, urging this, asking this, exhorting this in the Lord Jesus. That phrase goes with both those verbs. Requesting and exhorting, they're done based upon the Lord's authority. Therefore, this appeal that follows that we're looking at now is more than just good advice. It's more than just a friendly suggestion. What is here is something that all believers must take seriously. Second element, the foundation of the appeal. The appeal that Paul is making in this passage is based upon something. And that something is the truth, all the truth and doctrine he had already taught them when he was there in Thessalonica. He says in verse 1, that as you received from us instruction, he'll go on, but stop there. Again, Paul and the other missionaries had faithfully taught them doctrine when they were there. And that doctrine that they had learned forms the foundation for how then they ought to go about their daily lives. And that is a frequent motif in Scripture. That truth is taught first, and then we're called upon to live our lives in light of that truth. In biblical studies, we call that the indicative and imperative motif. Here's what we mean by that. Indicative means that there are statements in Scripture that indicate something. They indicate some truth, some doctrinal truth. It might be statements about God. It could be some truth about man, truth about sin, truth about faith, truth about repentance, and so on. Those are the indicative parts of Scripture, the teaching parts of Scripture. Then there are the imperative parts. A more common word would be commands. Those passages tell us what to do. They tell us how to live based upon the indicative statements. You should watch for that as you study Scripture. Sometimes they might actually be reversed in order, but they're there. So back to our verse. Paul is saying that what they had already been taught, the indicative, was the doctrine necessary for them to know something very important. Verse 1 how they ought to walk and please God. Now, once again, we find our daily living referred to as a walk. That's the Bible's way of referring to our entire lifestyle. But we also find here the way to summarize what the goal is of our entire lifestyle, what the goal is of our walk, our daily living, Our goal is striving to please God. And the striving element is even inherent in how Paul worded it here. Our life serving Christ 
is not aimed primarily toward our own well-being and pleasure. Now granted, serving Christ and obeying Christ is the best kind of life to live. It brings us the most joy, no doubt about it. But that's not the primary point. And many people serve that way. Their motivation is it's all about them and the glory they can receive and the attention they can get. Listen, that's not what our daily life about is about. It's not aimed primarily toward that. Rather, the first goal of our daily lives is to give God pleasure. Sometimes we say it this way, to give Him glory. But I like saying it that other way. It puts it down on a lower shelf in, in a sense where I can, I can wrap my mind around it. This idea of giving God pleasure, God has particular interest. And so our primary ambition ought to be knowing what those are, are and pursuing those, fulfilling those, and giving Him pleasure in the process. And notice in our verse that this kind of conduct is not optional. It's obligatory. It says we ought to live in this way. Doctrine helps us understand how we ought to live in the way that pleases God. The commentator G.K. Beale makes this comment, whether in the ancient world or today, the chief end of humanity has often been to take pleasure in this life. And that's so true in the world around us, but Christians can fall in this trap as well of thinking only about ourselves and our own pleasure. In contrast, Bill goes on to say, our passage affirms the opposite. Humanity's chief goal ought to be to take pleasure in pleasing God. What ought to give us the most pleasure is giving God pleasure. For that reason, Paul made that goal a regular part of his teaching. You don't just find it here. Listen to what he says to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For you were living formerly darkness. In other words, that's the life as an unbeliever. We're in a kingdom called darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. We're in that kingdom. Walk as children of light. What does that look like? Verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Walking in the light is walking in a way that pleases the Lord. You might think, well, it's easy to write about that. It's easy to say it, but what about his own life? Listen, Paul was not hypocritical on this topic. He states in 2 Corinthians that that goal was his goal. 2 Corinthians 5.9. I'll tell you, that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.9, is a verse that pastors and elders and counselors and disciples have asked people to memorize probably more than any other verse, potentially. 2 Corinthians 5.9, it's so far-reaching. Paul says, we have as our ambition, and that means the driving goal and motive of our life, whether at home or absent, meaning dead or alive, home in the body or absent from the body, we have as our ambition, what? To be pleasing to Him. That's a verse you put on your refrigerator. You see, that goal is for all of us. Even in our ministry as elders, this is a goal that we should be continually putting before you in some way or another. It doesn't matter whether it's the context of preaching, the context of discipling 101 or counseling someone. 
It has to be brought back to this periodically, this goal. There are other goals that we might have, but whatever goals we have are subservient to this one. In our marriages, we might have a goal. I, I want to I make my wife happy. I want to please her. I want to serve her. That's a great goal. It's a subservient goal to this one because this is the motivation behind it that's right. You could have the wrong motivation for doing good things. People do that in the body of Christ and in their serving and whatever. You can be in the ministry with the wrong motivation to satisfy self. But here the motivation is even in serving my wife, the motivation must be for the ultimate goal because it pleases God. Therefore, all the doctrine that we're giving in our teaching and our counseling is for that ultimate purpose. Now, to some degree, the Thessalonians were living in a way that pleased the Lord. So look what Paul interjects in the New American Standard that I generally te- uh, most teach from most often. He puts it as a parenthetical statement. He says in verse 1, just as you actually do walk. In other words, he was not berating them. These Thessalonians had indeed put into practice apostolic teaching, at least at some level. So Paul interrupts his train of thought, in a sense, to give credit where it's due, you know, honor where it's due. And that does fit with those commendations that we've seen earlier in the letter. They were. So in summary, the saints in Thessalonica already knew good doctrine. They knew the fundamentals of Christian living. They knew what commandments Paul had given them. And they knew that those commandments were not by Paul's authority, but it was by the authority of the Lord Jesus. They knew what was needed to please God. So the story ends great, right? We can just end there. Wrong. We find here that there's always room for improvement. It doesn't matter who you are, which is what is captured in the third element. So the nature of the appeal is the appeal is summarized in those two verbs. There's an authoritative urging and exhorting and requesting and entreating going on here about something. The foundation of this urging and entreating and requesting and exhorting is the doctrine that they knew. But here's the essence of the appeal. Paul now confirms that what God expects of all his people is to avoid the danger of status quo. So he says, verse 1, that you excel still more. Now that verb excel can be translated abound. It's that way in some versions. It's that way even later in this book. It means to overflow. It means to reach a surpassing level of excellence. But notice in our verse that that verb is followed by a modifier, still more. Or your translation may say more and more. How much more? Well, more and more, that much. It does mean to a greater degree. So that is highlighting the fact that what pleases God, certainly in a general sense, is making spiritual progress. Now, the exact same appeal occurs in chapter 4, verse 10, if you look down the road there a bit. There it's in relationship to one particular issue, and that is love for one another. He says in verse 10, we urge you, brethren, to excel in love, in other words, still more. 
We find find the same kind of exhortation to the believers in Philippi. Again, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. I pray that your love may abound still more and more. So this is an exhortation to continue to progress in spiritual development. Well, what do we need to progressively grow in then? What should we seek to excel in still more and more? Well, the complete answer to that is not found in this verse. In fact, the complete answer to that, since it takes all of Scripture, is something that's way too long for our time here this morning. Ultimately, it it does mean all dimensions of your Christian life, but I can at least make some comment on some areas here. Just to flesh this out a little bit, here's a bullet point list. For all believers, certainly this is right at the top of the list, the pursuit of knowing God. Knowing God is the basic component of spiritual growth. And knowing Him more deeply and more accurately. Scripture is what enlarges and corrects our view of God. Now, Scripture frequently does emphasize the importance of this topic. Think of those familiar words back in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, understands me, and knows me. New Testament, Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul says this about his prayer for the Colossians. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom, in all spiritual understanding, He's praying that they would grow deeper in their understanding of God and His ways and His thoughts. Why? Verse 10, so that you will please Him in all respects. It pleases God to know more about Him and to think of Him accurately. So Paul's priority for believers was spiritual progress. And that progress, no doubt, included this, a desire to know God more deeply. It's the kind of strong desire the psalmist described, particularly David. I think of Psalm 42, those comforting words. We, We love those kind of psalms because they enrich our hearts. When David talks about how much he wanted to know God, he says, Psalm 42, verse 1, as the deer, the little animal, pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, God. Psalm 63, verses 1 and following, Psalm 63, when David's out in the desert, he looks around at his circumstances and realizes the parched nature of of the desert would be a metaphor for his own soul if he didn't have the Lord. He was running from his son, Absalom, who was trying to kill him. I mean, that's a trial. He says in Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. I will seek you earnestly. He didn't say, I'm seeking the things about you or your blessings, but first of all, I'm seeking you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. 
This pleases God. We've had some people along the way. In the years I've been here, we've had even a member or two along the way, even one recently, leave the church because the deeper understanding of who God is, God is and his ways is not what they wanted to know about God. It wasn't the God that they were defining for themselves. So this is crucial. And no doubt we understand that growing in the knowledge of God means growing in the knowledge of Christ because Christ is God. Colossians 2 verse 2, it's put that way. Paul prayed for those Colossians to have the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ himself. There's something else on this bullet point list, what pleases God. And it's something we're going to clearly discover as we grow in our knowledge of God. We're going to grow in our understanding about something about God in particular. We're going to grow in our understanding that God is holy. We sung that earlier. Holiness of God means he's utterly different from every other being. He's ultimately higher than every other being. So we please God then by being like him. We please God by being holy ourselves, by pursuing holiness. God separate from sin, so as we separate ourselves from sinfulness, as we deal with the sinfulness in our own heart, we please him. As we hold different values and desires and perspectives from the non-believing world around us, as we separate ourselves from thinking like the world, we please him because he's like that. So no wonder Scripture encourages us to pursue this. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And that means growing and maturing in holiness. Peter emphasizes it this way, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. We must keep teaching about the doctrine of God and take you, you and each of us, all of us, deeper in understanding of Him. We must constantly be teaching about the holiness of God. By the way, men, Project Manhood tonight, free commercial. What are we studying? The doctrine of God. Why are we doing that? To enlarge and correct our view of God? To take us deeper? To stretch our thinking on the character and the nature of God? That's tonight, 5.30 men, dinner first. Then our study of God. Ladies, free commercial. New spa season is coming. If you're a visitor, spa stands for study, pray, and apply. What are they studying this season? The holiness of God. It's a great book by Kevin DeYoung, The Hole in Our Holiness. Why are we looking at things like that? So we can learn how to better please God. Here's something else on my bullet point list. We know that God is pleased when we reverence Him more than we do other people. The Bible calls reverencing people the fear of man, caring too much about what people think. When we prioritize God's thinking and perspectives over others, when we fear Him and not man, we please Him. You know how I know, how I know that? Galatians 1 verse 10. Paul had to confront the churches in Galatia because of their sinfulness in abandoning the true gospel. So he says this after confronting them, Galatians 1, 10, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? 
Am I now striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. They cannot fit together trying to please people and please God. Here's another one. It pleases God to have faith in Him. To have faith in God pleases Him. How do I know that? Hebrews 11, verse 6. Pretty straightforward. Hebrews eleven six. 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. This is not talking about that wishful thinking kind of faith that we just kind of imagine what we think God wants us to do and we call that faith when most of the time it's presumption. It starts with salvation. We're not saved any other way. No amount of good works can please God apart from faith. We're saved only by God's grace through faith, but faith continues to be necessary every day after our salvation. We walk by faith. We please God by walking with Him in faith. It's the kind of faith that affirms that all that Scripture says is true. That's how we walk. Our faith in what God says in His Word. Another bullet point, it pleases God to trust Him even during difficult trials. That our faith and our trust is rising to the surface even in times of affliction. How do I know that? Listen to this, Psalm 69. You know how you can read the Word sometimes and you've read things before, but all of a sudden you read it, it just jumps out. It's like, I've never read this before. How, where did this come from? Somebody put it in there all of a sudden. Maybe nobody else has ever read this first but me, you know. That happens to me sometimes. Psalm 69, 29 through 31, it was one of those. Here's the context. He says in verse 29, I'm afflicted and in pain. Okay, keep that in mind. I'm afflicted and in pain. Verse 30. So what am I going to do? I will praise the name of God with song and magnify Him with thanksgiving. So, verse 31, and it will please Him. It pleases the Lord, he says, to magnify the Lord and trust Him and to sing praises to Him even when we're afflicted and in pain. We could add so many other aspects of biblical teaching to the list, obviously. I mean, it pleases God to, one sense I've already said it, but it pleases God to regularly confess our sins. It, it pleases, pleases God to pray continually. It pleases God to pursue humility to turn from our pride and be humble. It pleases God to be content with what He's doing in our lives and His will for our lives. It pleases the Lord for us to willing to be suffer for His name, to, to, to be willing to do that. It pleases the Lord to be burdened for the loss and to evangelize the Lord, the loss. It pleases the Lord to care for one another in our church family. It pleases the Lord to honor God in our marriages and how we treat our spouses. But regardless of the specific ways we seek to please the Lord, it's the ought, it's the goal of our lives. We ought to do this. Regardless of the ways we ought to ponder this, the application of this promise, this is another one of those verbs, those verses that are read, and I go, wow, I need to ponder that. Proverbs 16, verse 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, God makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. What a promise. 
So all this fits with the doctrine of sanctification and the reality that sanctification is progressive. It's a progressive work by which we mature spiritually. And as a result of this ongoing maturing, our lifestyle becomes more and more pleasing to God. And this does impact an elder's role in the church. As I said earlier, whether it's preaching or teaching, there's something that we have to hold before people. And Ephesians 4 says in a different way that this is our role to help this. Ephesians 4 verse 11 where it talks about the gifted men that the Lord has given to the church. It, it, it lists their pastor teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, the maturing of the body of Christ, until we all attain to, he says, a mature man. Maturity. It's all aimed toward that. That puts a responsibility on the elders then. We're not allowed to just let the spirit of status quo linger. In our lives, in the lives of the people of the church or in the church itself. No status quo. And then to end the message in verse 2, he just once again reminds the Thessalonians of something that he's already said to them there. Of the teaching they had received that all this is built upon. You know what commandments we gave you. That term commandments is, is a strong, authoritative directive so again, there, there's authority here. These are not just guidelines. They're, they're orders. And the final phrase confirms once again the source of the authority. It's not us. It's not Paul. It's the authority, he says, of the Lord Jesus. And by the way, you know, when he confronted that church in Galatia, in the region of Galatia, all those churches, he started off that confrontation by reminding them where the authority was coming from. Galatians 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. I confront you, he goes on. Today, we submit to the same authoritative truth from God, and we find the authoritative truth in God's Word. We submit to God's word, but when I say that, we're always wanting to add this thought. We submit to what God actually says in his word, not what we want it to say. Keep in mind always 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter 1, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy was ever made by an act just of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's the word we have. You know, there, there are so many we could look at in church history that can be examples for us in this, and it, it does help us to do that, to look at examples of, of what it means. I mean, who's someone that we would say sought to excel still more and more, who strove for spiritual excellence, who grew in what it means to know God more deeply and what it means to grow in the knowledge of Scripture and what it means to please the Lord. We need those kind of examples, which means we need to be readers, by the way. There are people every once in a while that says, you know, I'm not a reader. And, and I want to cry out, well, then repent. You've you got to be a reader. You can be a slow reader. I'm, a slow, I'm the slowest reader there is. 
in the whole earth. But we have to read. And I'll tell you, beyond the Word of God itself that we must read and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, it's your reading that's going to powerfully influence you and shape your life almost more than anything. And read a variety of resources. I try to do that and circulate around different kind of books and books on theology or practical issues or biblical issues or controversies, but definitely biographies. To look at examples, enduring examples in church history, and one of those enduring examples, just one, no doubt on the topic like this, is Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is always referred to as probably the greatest theologian that America has ever had. Likely true, I don't know. He certainly was a a leading and, and maybe the leading theologian of his day. The most prominent pastor in the first great awakening in the 1700s in New England. Edward has, Edwards has a lot of influence still on the church today, still on us today, primarily due to what seemed to be his insatiable thirst for God and for the things of God and, and for personal purity in his life and holiness and virtue and the Word of God and truth and the desire for all those things, he wrapped all that up and he called them his religious affections. And there's a, a comment in some of his writing where he talks about the kinds of things he desired before he came to Christ compared to the kind of things that he desired now that he was a believer. There's a dramatic difference that Christ made in his life. And and therefore, the things that he desired before, the worldly things that he thought were important, they just began to fade. Here's what he says in volume one of of the works of Jonathan Edwards. He writes this, those former delights never reached the heart and did not arise from any sight of the divine excellency of the things of God. They did not derive from any taste of the soul-satisfying and life-giving good there is in the things of God. I'm not reminding you of Edwards to say we need to be Jonathan Edwards. He's just an example. God has had unique men and women like Edwards that he chose for special purposes, and so that experience is not going to be ours verbatim. But his overall pursuit of God and excelling still more and more in prioritizing spiritual things, that is an example we should emulate so that we are growing spiritually, so that we're excelling and therefore pleasing God. And it's not an instantaneous process. It's a pleasing God and being mature it doesn't just culminate overnight The pursuit of spiritual excellence like we're talking about this morning is a lifelong commitment. It doesn't matter how old you are. We don't retire from this. As we walk in daily obedience then, we gradually and surely then do become more and more like Christ and we please Him more and more. Ask yourself this question then. And be honest with yourself. Am I growing as a Christian? Or am I stagnated? Do I love God's Word? And am I growing in my understanding of it? 
which certainly does require spending time in it and prioritizing and listening to the teaching of it and so forth. So forth. But am I growing in my understanding of God's Word and therefore growing in my understanding of God? Am I growing in the pursuit of pleasing the Lord? I never know what's going on completely in the lives of every single person that's here. I I can barely even deal with my own heart trying to figure out what's there sometimes. But I do know this, the Lord has each of us here today for a purpose. For some, perhaps, it's time for a wake-up call. There's been some settling for the status quo. There's been maybe a long period of coasting. It's a time this morning for us to commit ourselves to a life then of excelling still more. It's time for us to commit ourselves to resisting that settling for the status quo. Richard Phillips makes this comment, if Christ is going to honor my life, then it will be in response to my life honoring Him. And as we pursue excellence and further growth, take comfort in something. This is not not all done at all in your own strength. The strength to excel comes from the power of the indwelling Christ. So we're not left on our own to grow. Keep in mind those wonderful words from Paul, Galatians 2.20. Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, in other words, as a human, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And one final thought. If you don't know Christ, if he's not your Lord and Savior, then none of this applies to you. You cannot mature and grow spiritually. This is only for those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit, who have who've come to embrace Christ as their Lord and, and Savior. They're the ones who can grow spiritually. I know that because Romans 8 verse 8 says this, those who are in the flesh, that means outside Christ, cannot please God. It just says that. So if you don't know Christ, the way Scripture defines it, come to Him. Put your trust in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sin, and then you can begin this life of learning how to more and more strive for excellence and more and more please the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the wake-up call that we all need at some level all the time, frequently. So thank You for that. Help us by Your strength to humble ourselves, to admit our need, so that we can depend on you, that we might strive for excellence and grow to whatever level of growth you have for us. We want to pursue that. In the name of our Savior, amen.